I have an awful job some days when I have to go talk to people whose children were killed or, or try to make sense of really devastating, horrible situations. Um, you know, the, the, the political climate right now, I just, I just think it reminds everybody just how important this job is. And, you know, not all of the tasks we do in journalism are, are going to be fun if you are in the, in the job, but, you know, there is a, a sense of responsibility to it. I think that sense of responsibility is certainly greater today than it was two two years ago. The journalism industry has been thrown through the ringer over the past few years. When my grandparents might have headed home from work to watch the news on their television, I've grown up having all of the stories and more at my fingertips via the cell phone. Twitter has become the go-to news outlet of the 21st century. Fake news has become the mantra of a story which somebody wants not to be told. But let's not make this political. On today's podcast, I'll interview the many faces of journalism. I'll speak with some of the most notable journalists in the industry and ask the question, why does the truth matter? Here's another episode of the Off the Mat Wall podcast. This is where it all started, say prosecutors. On Sunday, April 12th, Freddie Gray walked out of this shop with a cup of coffee and looked police officers directly in the eye. That's Emmy Award-winning reporter and CNN correspondent Miguel Marquez. He has covered some of the most talked-about stories of the last decade, including Iraq, Afghanistan, dozens of shootings, the death of Freddie Gray, multiple presidential elections, and so much more. He was on the ground in Pittsburgh to cover the Tree of Life shooting. Just a few days later, he flew to California to cover the Thousand Oaks shooting. Turn on the TV the next time a big news story happens, and you'll see the face of Miguel. He gave me an inside look at his career in the industry. I have been very lucky. I guess lucky is is the easy summation. I you know, I was not in New York for September 11th. I had left New York just before that and felt a little left out and then eventually was able to cover Iraq far more than I ever thought I would and Afghanistan and have been to, you know, more fires and disasters than one probably should in one lifetime. Um, and there is something horrendous about seeing all of that, but I consider myself very lucky to see people at their absolute worst and still resilient and, and still positive and still hopeful. Um, I, there's something very odd about covering people, uh, families, towns that have been destroyed by fire or weather or war or whatever it is, and that they just still have hope. So it's I'm in a lucky place. After covering so many stories over his illustrious career, I asked Miguel about the most powerful stories that he's ever covered. The most fascinating story I've ever covered was Afghanistan, by far. Um, It was incredible to see the projection of American power and strength in a place that was so decentralized and racked by decades of war, that there was no structure for the U.S. and its allies there to fight against, and whatever they fought against would only sort of regrow, essentially. Um, The dynamics there were really fascinating. Covering Iraq, 
was uh, was a really difficult story to cover, but it was really uh, amazing. Um, you know, the hardest story I ever covered was the 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 bombing and the murders of mostly children, uh, 67 children, 78 people in all in uh, in Norway in 2011. Uh, that was absolutely horrendous to cover. I never saw a body. I never saw any of the aftermath. I never. I saw some of the aftermath downtown from the bomb in, in, in Oslo, but I didn't see on Utoya Island where this madman killed these children. Um, I never saw that. But seeing the way it affected that country um, was incredible. And now that I've covered so many of these mass shootings in this country, um, it does, uh, I, I think about that place a lot and how we handle these things versus a place like Norway. Working as a journalist is no easy way to live. Miguel has moved repeatedly around the country and has had to drop everything at a moment's notice to cover a story. In fact, when he got the call about the recent shooting in Pittsburgh, he dropped everything. His goal? To profile the shooter. You, it's the sort of job where you basically have to give up your life for. So I, I have moved um, back to New York after being in Los Angeles for one year. I was in New York for four years before that, and I was in Los Angeles for two years before that, and I was in London for three years, a little over three years before that. So I've moved around a lot. Those aren't all the moves, but but it's a lot of moving and it's a lot of giving up your life to go cover a story. I was trying to find apartments here what, three weeks ago when, on a Saturday morning when I got called to say there's been this shooting at a synagogue in Pittsburgh, can I go? And it's the sort of thing that when that call comes, you don't, unless you have a very good reason to say no, um, I figured out how I could look for an apartment later in the week, and I jumped on a plane, went to Pittsburgh, got there. was a very confused, complicated story, and there was di several different locations. And my job was to chase the shooter, so I went to the places that we thought we could find something and eventually got to his house and was able to collect some information there and, and you you know, you just you just start digging. You just start finding one little fact and two and four and then eight and it just keeps building and before by the time we left we knew pretty much everything plus a lot of things that we're still trying to find out and, and, and confirm and, and be able to report about him. So um, it takes uh, it takes a lot of effort. The the bit that you see on television, which is about two or three minutes, um, is preceded by hours and hours and days sometimes of, of work and scrambling and digging and writing and emails and conversations. And then it also gets distilled down into, you know, the most important bits um, for that two-minute report. Of correspondence covering both of these huge stories. We're going to start with CNN's Miguel Marquez, who's live in Pittsburgh, covering uh, the horrific mass shooting there. Miguel, we, we know that the shooter expressed a, a hatred of Jews online, um, but... Would that hatred, would his anti-Semitism have, have been obvious to a casual observer? 
Yeah, look, he was not posting to the, the Facebooks and the Twitters of the world, Jake. Uh, you'd have to know where to look in order to find it. This is a guy whose life we have dug into deeply. He barely cast a shadow in this world, and now he is charged with the biggest attack and murder of U.S. Jew and Jews in U.S. history. Miguel's Twitter bio reads, a real fake news reporter. I asked him what that means to him and his passion for journalism with the industry facing scandal and controversy every single day. Well, you may be familiar that the president uh, calls CNN in particular, but news, fake news, uh, or, or at least news he doesn't agree with. So I think it's, you know, you have to own it. It reminds us why it's important. Um, it reminds us, you know, wh why we got into the business to begin with. Um, I, I, In some ways, I think the, the effect has been positive. I, I think largely it's been positive, for at least for, for journalists and people in the industry. It may feel like drudgery to some, and, and you know others may not much care for journalists, but you know, I, I have an awful job some days when I have to go talk to people whose children were killed or, or try to make sense of really devastating, horrible situations. Um, you know, the, the, the political climate right now, I just, I just think it reminds everybody just how important this job is. And, you know, not all of the tasks we do in journalism are, are going to be fun if you are in the, in the job. But, you know, there is a, a sense of responsibility to it. And I think that sense of responsibility is certainly greater today than it was two years ago. Hi, my name is Jason Gay. I'm a sports columnist for the Wall Street Journal. Now you might think that everybody at the Journal is just an economic genius wearing an expensive suit. And you'd be right. But when it comes to sports, we hit the ground running. So you get a different kind of coverage, like how shooting averages correspond with salaries. And who's worth keeping and who's dead weight. We're not just some rookie team. We're the Wall Street Journal. Your season pass to in-depth sports coverage, news, and analysis. Jason Gay is the Wall Street Journal sports columnist and the 2016 SPJ Sports Columnist of the Year. He's written for publications including Vogue, GQ, Rolling Stone, and the New York Observer. His New York Times best-selling book, Little Victories, a sports writer's notes on winning at life, showcases his comic journey through family, fatherhood, heartbreak, and joy. Here's his take on how he became the sports columnist for the Wall Street Journal. You know, the journal is a job I've had for almost, almost 10 years. Before that, I worked at a couple of newspapers. I worked at some magazines. I was writing at GQ magazine when I got a call saying the Wall Street Journal was starting a sports section and looking for a uh, sports columnist. They had actually called a friend of mine who, for whatever reason, didn't want to do it. And I thought, well, that sounds like a neat job. Um, and I went and talked to him about it, and I auditioned for it. Like, I wrote, like, a fake sports column for a fake newspaper, <laughs> you know, like it didn't actually run, like that sounds weird, but I just wrote like a tryout column that didn't actually get published. Uh, I think I did that a couple of times before they let me do it for real, and honestly, it was, it's been the best job I've ever had. I feel very, very lucky to work at a paper like the Journal that has the kind of readership that it has, and people really sort of care about it, you know, we're all sort of trying to figure out what's next, right, in this business. And I think the best thing you can possibly have is the opportunity to work for a place where the people who you know, pay for it and 
keep them in business are really passionate about it, and that's, that's what the journal is. Jason's really funny, and he's known to take interesting takes in his content. He interviewed Emma Stone about PowerPoint presentations. In the last month, he's even written about Major League Baseball's ugly sweatshirt problem, pig racing, and Thanksgiving family touch football. I don't have, like, a scientific approach to anything that I do. Like, I feel like when I read people's, like, you know, when people get asked questions of this nature and they say, like, what's your morning news diet? Like, and they're like, well, first I read the Atlantic Monthly, and then I go on to the New Yorker.com, and I'm always like, I just, like, go on and I'm like, oh, dinosaur bones found in Mongolia? And I read that, and then that leads into an article about, you know, Emily Blunt's marriage, which leads me to an article about the... Cleveland Cavaliers front office, which, you know, like, there's no rhyme or reason to it. Um, I remain interested in ambivalent in all areas. I asked him if he ever wanted to become a comedian and how hecklers on social media affect his work. I mean, he does have 66.3 thousand followers on Twitter. Did I ever think about becoming a comedian? No, you know, I mean, uh, I'm not cut out like that. I think that's an incredibly punishing cruel business because, you know, I've certainly gotten my fair share of heckling in the form of, you know, emails from readers saying you suck, but that's quite a world apart from people actually shouting it in your face. I don't know if I could handle that. I'm a sensitive guy, Matt. You know, I don't know if I'm built that way. I have enormous respect for people who can cut that, you know, cut it in that world. I'm more worried about myself on social media than any other person, you know, just saying something stupid or useless. And candidly, you know, I think we're kind of reaching a fork in the road as far as social media, the value of it, what it is, you know. I think all of us have felt compelled to be part of it because it's immediate and there's so many people involved in it. And, you know, it's a lot of fun sometimes, but... There's a lot of useless nonsense on it, and I think that a lot of our time has been dedicated to trying to figure out what the value is, and there might not be a great deal of value, certainly not reciprocal in the way that we once thought it had been. So that's a long-winded way of saying, like, I don't really put a lot of time into worrying about the trolls. I'm more worried about myself being an idiot, Mm -hmm. Um, but I also just am kind of at, you know, a little bit of a crossroads in terms of what I think you know, how much time I should be spending on this, and, and uh, uh, the answer is probably closer to zero than what my current <laughs> level of engagement is. I know you did the Today Show, and you were on the Kelly Ripa Show before this, but this has to be the highlight of the press tour. This is pretty awesome, I yeah. gotta admit. Yeah. We don't have a name yet for this podcast. Is this your first podcast? Have you done a podcast before? I've done a podcast before, but... I um, have never named one, so do you want me to spitball? There's a lot that goes on behind the scenes of a story. Phone calls, traveling, public relations professionals. It's no question that interviewing and journalism is a talent. Jason shared with me his favorite interview ever. Hint, he was the longest-serving late-night talk show host in American television history. You know, when I think about a favorite interview, uh, it's going back a number of years now. I got a chance to interview David Letterman who at the time was still on television and hadn't done a lot of interviewing. Um, and just that flukishly came together. And he was somebody that I grew up basically worshiping, you know, just watching that show, especially the 1230 at night show forever and being so influenced by it, you know, and just thinking he was, you know, the beginning of the end of what 
comedy was to me. Um, so just to be able to talk to that person and find him so um, engaged and really willing to answer questions, I think his thought was being like, I don't really do these interviews that much, but I'm going to do them. I'm going to really do them. I'm going to answer the questions. He was so great that way. And he talked for a really long time. I mean, that was, I mean, I'll never forget that. That was a, that was a great um, experience. A false story reaches 1,500 people six times quicker on average than a true story does. Falsehoods are 70% more likely to get retweeted than accurate news. So, Jason, why does the truth matter? I mean, I think you have to have a baseline of common facts or else we're just kind of like screaming at, at each other like on a train car, right? I think we have to have mutually agreed upon information. Um, you know, the fact that we live in a climate in which um, politically people just can't seem to agree on the most rudimentary of facts, you know, whether X happened or this happened this way or someone is responsible for X is crazy to me. And that's a major change in my lifetime to see it drift this way. Hopefully, you know, there'll be some recalibration of that and people will, you know, realize the value of kind of commonly held information. I'm not saying that all facts are facts and that there's such thing as indisputable material. I mean, there are indisputable materials, but like, I'm not saying that like there's not value in questioning the official party line on anything. Um, what I, I do find it very troubling, the idea that if you don't like a reality, you can simply question it, uh, to the degree to which you can just, you know, throw water on something that you don't like. And I see that happening a lot in politics, and that bothers me. When I was the sports editor of my college newspaper, I was told repeatedly that the newspaper industry was dying. Our publication went from five-day to three-day to one-day in just a few years. Over the last two decades, weekday print circulation has shrunk 25 million users. Is the newspaper industry dying? Jason doesn't think so. <laughs> yes, I'm speaking to you from the afterlife. We've been, I've been dead for years. Um, no, on the contrary. And I think, you know, if I say anything in our conversation that could be helpful, I'd really want to mount as like a vigorous defense for the, 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 the vitality and the, and the necessity of the news industry. Now, I don't want to tell you, like, I, I don't like it when people say, like, well, we need the newspaper industry and act like it's somehow, like, this public utility that we should be taxing people to pay for. And it's a business like everything else. That's why people started do so. That's why people started radio stations, television, and so on. However, there's some good news out there, um, you know, especially at sort of the national uh, daily level that people are getting a reappreciation for you know, integrity and, and that sort of fact-finding that we talked about a moment ago and, you know, reinvesting in subscriptions. And especially it's happening at younger levels. We're getting subscriptions to newspapers from people who typically didn't subscribe to newspapers as little as five, four, you know, four, five, six, seven years ago. I would say the newspapers like The Journal, Washington Post, New York Times, they're as good as they've ever been, uh, if not better than they've ever been. Um, actually, you know, I think they are all better than they've ever been. I mean, just in terms of the depth and the kinds of creativity and the, the type of reporting that they have now. Um, you get a lot of bang for that buck. The numbers also speak to this. This isn't just me pulling it out of my behind. I mean, the subscriptions are up digitally. 
their print. I mean, it's just kind of remarkable, the research that we've seen in the last handful of years. Uh, so I think there's a real reason to be bullish on that of those institutions where there is real worry. And I think you might be right and onto something is like in front of locals, uh, you know, city weeklies, small town uh, weeklies, papers that I sort of grew up on. Um, those places are suffering. You know, the, the margins aren't so great at the local level because you just don't have the numbers. Uh, and, and once those places are threatened, and they are threatening, once those places close, and they have been closing, and you sort of lose the watchful eye of local news agencies and communities, well, that just leaves an open to opening for people to do things in public life that they shouldn't be doing. And I think that's worse. If I learned anything from my conversation with Jason, it's that there is really no cookie-cutter form of journalism. While content changes, people continue to want great stories. I mean, just anecdote, I can relate something that I think is kind of funny, which is that, you know, we've had for now, I don't know, close to 10, 15, 20 years, consultants come into news agencies, especially people who have some uh, fluency in the digital life, and they come in, they say, this is what audiences want, and they, you know, they want X, they want Y, they want these kinds of um you know, stories, they want them to be this long, they want them to have this kind of packaging, and so on. And those people come and go, and the, the, uh, the sort of trends come and go, but what always comes back into fashion are just really good stories, meaning well-reported, well-written, you know, information you can't get elsewhere. So, like, the stories that were kicking ass in 1910 are also kicking ass in 2018. I find that really funny, uh, just the irony that, you know, here we are this business, which has incredibly evolved and has changed in so many ways and is perceived to be under siege. And, you know, the thing that actually still moves the needle is exactly what moved the needle more than a century ago. Um, and I think that that's the thing that these papers kind of have underestimated at their peril, that great stories are what people want. That's what people want. They are not necessarily, like, driven to do this because you know, you're doing X kind of um, video packaging and so on. They want great stories. And I think if you start there, you know, this is something that's changed in the time that I've been uh, in newspapers that, you know, you're kind of expected to be able to do it all. You know, you can't be one of these people in newspapers who are like, ah, I don't believe in TV or I don't believe in video. I don't believe in uh, radio. You know, people nowadays, you know, they're multi-tool players. They're utility players, right? To use the sports cliche, they have the ability to write, but they also can do videos. They also can do podcasts. They make themselves, you know, fluent across platforms. I think you can't be someone who just says, I only do this one thing now. Or you could be that person, but you're not going to be as valuable as the person who has a fluency in all of it. So I would say, like, you know, if I'm a journalism student, don't close the door on any one thing. You know, just be good at all of it or have a fascination with all of it or try to get at least adept in most of it. Um, you have those kinds of skills and you have those kinds of talents. You're just going to have a much broader uh, array of options um, and you're going to be more valuable to people. Don't close the door on anything. Like, do it all. Like if someone says to you, like, you know, hey, what do you think about covering the, uh, you know, university badminton tournament? And you're like, well, I really see myself as an NFL writer. It's like, no, you don't. Do the, do the badminton thing. Like, learn something about yourself. You can get something out of that. I think there's a tremendous value in trying to be a little bit of a Swiss Army knife these days. Because I know editors love that. 
Jason's respect for his peers in the industry and his takes on content is a breath of fresh air for an industry ridiculed pretty much every single day. Towards the end of our conversation, Jason decided to give me a pep talk. It's one that I wish for every journalism graduate to hear. Don't worry so much about like the, the state of the industry and where the industry is headed and stuff like that. Just put your head down and do what you want to do. Like I think like these like the sort of like, you know, um, worrying about the fate of things to like publishers and journalism professors and people like Richard Deitch who write about the media and stuff like that. That's their job. You just do what you want to do. And if you're good at it, there's always going to be a job for you. Like, I don't, I think people like think too much and try to like calibrate what they're going to do on the basis of the market. And I'll tell you something totally. I mean, I'm 47 years old. My entire life I've been told that the newspaper industry was going out of business. My entire time I've been in journalism. So, you know, I'm now 20-some-odd years in. So that goes to show what I think about, like, the doomsday stuff. This is not to say that there aren't very real market forces out there and stuff, but I think if you, you know, knuckle down and do the kind of stuff that you want to do, you're going to be fine. That's my pep talk to you, Matt. <laughs> I'm, I'm Saul Bookman here on the Arizona Daily Walkout. I'm here with former U of A point guard TJ McConnell. TJ, year number three in the system. How's it feel? Amazing. Um, to be with the Sixers again is the best feeling. Uh, new team, a lot of expectations this year, so just trying to live up to it. That's Saul Bookman. He's the social and digital media content manager for Fox Sports Arizona. After speaking to two of the most notable names in the industry, I wanted the opinions of some recent college graduates, and Saul was going to give me exactly that. It's actually written in his contract that he doesn't write. Rather, he focuses on digital engagement of photos and videos on social media and the website. Uh, I do nothing when it comes to writing. Um, that was actually part of uh, my process here. Uh, and it's been pretty interesting. Uh, everything we do relays around photos and videos and how to really look at analytics and try to get um, people's attention in demographics that we want to get their attention in. A recent college graduate, Saul talked about taking journalism classes and how he felt ill-prepared for the digital landscape. He took advantage of his college newspaper to stay ahead of the game. You know, I had a photojournalism class, which in a roundabout way ended up being as close to a digital class as I could get. Um, and then I had um, a coding class. Those, that, that was all I had the entire time I was there in terms of how to prepare myself for the digital age of jur journalism, which is here. It's here. It's not coming. It is here. And the professors that were teaching at the time don't have experience in that realm. Maybe one or two did, but not everybody. And when the majority of your faculty are teaching stuff that used to be relevant in the 80s, 70s, 90s, early 2000s, um, but they don't know nor can they keep up with the times currently, you have a significant problem. And you have a lot of you have a lot of wasted um, opportunity to teach young up and coming journalists about the different ways they can navigate their journalism degree. Saul brought up a really interesting point just now. Journalism is changing, and I think pretty much everybody on the planet knows that. But in order to stay ahead of the game, colleges are needing to look towards the future. And in the current times, it seems like everything is all about innovation and never getting complacent.
What's going on, everybody? Welcome to the Arizona Wildcats basketball preview show here on ESPN Tucson 1490 and 104.9 FM. I'm your host, Justin Spears, with the Wildcaster and the Arizona Daily Star. Justin Spears is a digital content writer for the Arizona Daily Star and a radio host for ESPN Tucson. He talked about preparing for his career in a multifaceted way and how the sports subscription website The Athletic has managed to revolutionize the industry. When I first got into college, that journalism is changing and it is becoming a more digital, it's just becoming more digital. And in order to be successful, you're going to have to be able to do several things. That's why when I first got into it, I originally just wanted to be a broadcaster. But even now, you see TV stations, they post written stories on their website. So if you want to be a broadcaster, you also need to learn how to write. And then once I started learning how to write, I loved being a writer and and being a reporter. And then uh, eventually over the last few years, um, I just got to the point where I I knew that I needed to to do the, the multiple things like being a writer, doing TV, as well as doing podcasts or doing a radio show. And, I, you know, I think journalism now, um, you know, you start to see a lot of, you know, news outlets that are strictly online. That's why I love The Athletic. Everything that The Athletic is doing is awesome because they know that people, they love to read, but they also know that the newspaper industry is kind of dying. So what they did was they said, well, we're going to make this a newspaper but just for online. We're not going to have a bunch of ads and just draw away our readers, but we're going to make it to where, yes, people can pull up their phone or their iPad or their computer, and they can pull up a story, and they can read it and read several other stories as if it was a newspaper. Um, If you want to look at the way journalism is evolving, The Athletic is is a news outlet that you need to look at because they're doing it right. Justin was involved in pretty much everything in college. He wrote for the newspaper, directed the sports content for the radio station, and even worked for the TV station. When he graduated, despite being just 22 years old, Justin was thrown into covering one of the biggest scandals in the history of college basketball. Late September comes, and what happens to Arizona basketball late September? They are implicated in the pay-for-play scandal that's being investigated by not the NCAA, but the FBI. And, uh, you know, seeing the newsroom at that time, you know, me being, shoot, I was 22. I mean, I'm 23 now, so I was 22 last year. And me being a 22-year-old and seeing all of that, that really opened up my eyes because I saw some of the best reporters, guys like Bruce Pascoe, or even uh, Caitlin Schmidt, who's been a, a wonderful reporter for us, seeing how they operate and how they write the stories and how they check and call for sources. And another, you know, kind of, whoa, I'm dealing with the big boys here, is when I sit next to Bruce Pascoe at press conferences, he's not afraid to ask Sean Miller anything. And I know Sean Miller kind of gets irritated sometimes because he doesn't want to answer questions like those, but you know, seeing a a professional like him ask those kind of questions, that's when I was like, wow, this guy is my colleague. I work with this guy. For many, that's the most challenging part of journalism, asking those tough questions and getting shade for doing so. 
investigating topics people want you to know nothing about. There are 336 million active users on Twitter. Twitter trolls pretty much run amok amongst journalists, and Justin has his very own. He has a message for all those haters. There's a lot of moving parts in the journalism world, and and it, it, it just it bothers me that you know sometimes when we post a story on Twitter, we have people you know giving negative comments, or you know I I have a couple trolls on Twitter that only comments on my tweets when they're correcting me or they're like belittling me and you know this isn't this isn't an easy job and you know i know a lot of those people that are commenting on it maybe some of them you know they make more money than me but you know this is my lifestyle this is what i do for a job i don't go to these other people's jobs and say like oh you need to do this right you need to do that and i mean sure this is what i signed up for but you know i just wish people and readers, they would honestly see what we have to go through on a daily basis just to do our job. I want to go back to something Jason shared with me earlier. He said that there will always be a job for people out there willing to put their heads down and do work. So if I've learned anything from my experience in journalism, it's that the newspaper industry is not dying. It's simply adapting. That's exactly what makes organizations like The Athletic so special. That's why so many journalists find a home after they've been laid off. People want great stories. People want to hear stories that will make them laugh, will make them cry, and get them pissed off. So to all those journalists out there who are grinding every day, thank you. No matter who you are affiliated with, don't let people tell you that you are fake news. Don't let people tear you down. Keep your head down and do work. This has been another episode of the Off the Mat Wall podcast. I have a whole host of people to thank for this episode, including Miguel Marquez, Jason Gay, Saul Bookman, and Justin Spears. The sound clippings you heard in this episode were used with permission from CNN, The Wall Street Journal, The Arizona Daily Wildcat, and The Sports Exchange of ESPN Tucson. Thank you to Spike Krause for your musical renderings, and huge thank you to James Kelly. You gave me a shot to be a reporter six years ago, and I cannot be more thankful to you. For the Off the Matt Wall podcast, I'm Matt Wall. La, 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 la.